and welcome to Lessons Learned, supported by Airhead, with me, Laura Winter. In this podcast, I'm going to be speaking to star sportsmen and women about the moments, choices, or indeed in hindsight, the mistakes that have formed the backdrop to their greatest victories and their biggest defeats. Because more often than not, a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. We are about to delve into my guests' professional and personal moments, both good and bad. From becoming a parent or winning Olympic gold, to getting divorced or losing a race, there are lessons to be learned in every human experience. So here we go. It's the final episode of Lessons Learned Series 1. I have absolutely loved bringing this podcast to you. And if you're still here with me listening along, thank you. Last time we had an absolute laugh and a few tears with Catherine Merry, former 400 meter runner and Olympic bronze medalist. I absolutely loved Kath's personable and candid nature, and I know so many of you out there did as well. If you haven't yet listened, do go back and catch up. But for now, we are bringing the series to a close with a rugby player who is nothing short of a legend, although he doesn't like me using that word. I can't wait for you to listen to a conversation that was deep, moving, inspiring, and just about everything in between. As ever, due to the lockdowns of 2020, this episode was recorded virtually, but we've smoothed the audio out as much as possible. So sit back, relax, and for the last time this series, enjoy. My final guest of this series is Wales and British and Irish Lions legend Sam Warburton. The flanker, who played his whole professional career for Cardiff Blues, was first capped for Wales in 2009. He was named as captain in 2011, going on to lead his country a record 49 times amongst 74 international caps, Grand Slam and Six Nations glory, and two Rugby World Cups as well. Sam was also twice named Lions captain in 2013 and 2017, before announcing his retirement in 2018, battling with injury. Sam has two children with his wife, Rachel, and is now a pundit, and was also part of the Welsh coaching team for a year. Sam, a very warm welcome. Yeah, hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on. No, thank you so much for being part of this. We first met, didn't we, in um, a school bus, which sounds ridiculous, <laughs> but it also doubled up as the BT Sport kind of green room because we were working in European fixture in Swansea together. I'm pretty sure it was a cold, rainy day as well, so it wasn't like yeah. the nicest setting. <laughs> it was, um, <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of a grim afternoon, but yeah, it was the first time we met on a school bus. So for those thinking that we're like long-time school friends, you know, we meet these days on school buses to meet for our pre-show meetings, yeah. Yeah, a school bike. It was strange. I remember walking on, and me and you both looked at each other and went, are we in the right place? I know. Yeah, no, we were actually on time. We were the yes. two ones bang on time, weren't we? Uh-huh. That's what it was. And we started complaining about how punctual you should be. Yeah, everyone else was late, for sure. Exactly. I remember that. I love to be punctual, exactly. I'm, I'm always early. If I'm, not, if I'm yeah. on time, I'm late. I'm one of those people. Exactly, definitely. Uh, well, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Um, the final episode of the series, actually, as well. So going out with a bang. And um, you have been, again, very <laughs> punctual and professional and sent over your kind of five key life lessons ahead of time. You, it's kind of like you'd already had them in your mind. How long did it take you to actually come up with these? Because they were you kind of hit, yeah. hit them back to me straight away. Yeah, to be honest, well, it's something I've like kind of... Like I've reflected on a lot over the last two years since I finished because since writing my book as well, that was a really good exercise to kind of like when you're playing, you're just like in this hundred mile an hour train just going through your career, then you finish, you come back down to normality. You've actually got a lot of time to think and reflect about all the key moments in your career. So for me, like they're quite they stand out quite obvious. So I normally when I do interviews, I kind of do them spontaneously. I don't like to do the questions, but this one 
it was just like for me it's quite easy that the things I talk about which I think have been the most significant lessons that I've learned in the last going back to perhaps 20 years of age um so yeah for me like you know we were just saying just beforehand I didn't realize how much sport would have taught me you think you just turn up you play rugby you go back home you play a game on a Saturday and just repeat that cycle for 10 years but you get thrown into so many situations you know good and bad but I sit here now as a 32 year old and I'm thinking I've probably been through quite a lot for 32 you know it's you don't realize how much sort of life experience you get from playing sort of top flight rugby for, for a decade or so so yeah I think there's um plenty to talk about but yeah the five lessons that they stood out quite obvious for me in my head and in that intro I talked about the Six Nations glory the Grand Slams captaining your country of course successful Lions tours as well but actually I think it's from the bad moments or the the lowest points that you feel you've learned the most lessons and that's actually reflected in your life lessons that they're not all the gleaming positives of your career they're not the big shiny moments are they now, people always say that, or you learn a lot more from your losses. But I think it's, that's why I think this is a good platform to do it. You hear like coaches say it a lot after games, or oh, we'll learn a lot more from a loss than we do a win. But then you never delve into, well, what was it then that you learned and how did you make it better? So I guess like we can go into that. But without doubt, you do learn a lot more from like the, the negative experiences because one, it makes you realize from a performance perspective, we're not good enough and you've got to do more and you really got to sit down and that's where you get the amateur who might just go out and, and drink instead and not worry about it or you get, I think, the really good pros who are like, right, how can I make this never happen again? Because I don't want it to happen again. I haven't sacrificed and committed myself for such a long time to go through these failures re- repeatedly. So yeah, there's really good stories to go into hopefully and hopefully uh, people can, can pick up, at least if they pick up something off it then and I've done my job. Oh, absolutely. Okay, let's get into it. Where do you want to start? Oh, is there any one in particular that you'd like to start on? I don't mind. I don't know whether we finish on. I've got them in front of me here, see. Um, yeah. Well, what about... No, I'll go off your lead. Yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind. I'll talk about any of them because then I can talk about them spontaneously then. I don't want it to look too planned for my end. So <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm easy either way. Okay, perfect. Let's <clears> start <throat> then with... We're going to kind of go chronologically here. So let's go for accepting the national captaincy at 22 and the challenges that that brought to you because that was in 2011. So yeah, you're 22 years old at that point and suddenly you are captain of Wales. Yeah, oh jeepers. So like, I never ever wanted to be a captain. So Warren Gatland asked me and I was like, no, I I can't. (laughs) Because I was 22, there was guys who were 35 like 80, 90 caps more experience. We had like 15 caps under my belt at that point. And I was like, let's just like, I said, what about, and I listed off about 10 players. I won't go through them. I listed off about 10 players. What about all these guys? And he went, no, I, I want you to do it. And um, I always thought leadership was, because I've always thought I was a leader in the sense that like, I always set myself high standards. You know, like, like we just joked about, punctual, make sure you wear the right kit, always do my extras, Good, try to be a, a good role model in, in the public eye, all these things, you know. I always thought I was a good leader, but then being a good captain is very different because captain then, you're suddenly put in front of the press, you're the diplomat, you've got to be a lot more organised because you're obviously coordinating a few more things in the team. So leadership and captain is quite different. So I was like, I can be a leader, but I'm not sure I can be a captain. And I thought people's perception of a captain would be, big in rugby anyway, big horrible guy, like, you know, tape around his head, ruling with an iron fist, like, you know, lays down the law. And I remember I was chatting to a captain beforehand and Warren Gatton set up this, this interview, this meeting. And he said, oh, you, you need to call players out when they make a mistake. You need to be able to like, set, like stamp your authority. And I remember in my head, I was nodding along, but in my head I was like, that's not how I do it. Like, I, I completely disagree. 
because if somebody did that to me, they would lose me. I'd say, I'm not playing for you. Like, like you know, everyone's allowed to make a human error. You know, it's, if someone's been deliberately negligent, yeah, of course. So you have to maybe I still have a quiet word anyway, in, not in front of a group. But I didn't agree with that, and I thought, well, I got to do this my way. So I said no to Warren. We went and played England, uh, and I was captain for that game. It was a World Cup warm-up in 2011, and we won an important penalty towards the end of the game. But I remember just thinking, I'm going to do it for these warm-ups because our current captain was injured at the time. It's good for the CV. I would have been captain for Wales two or three times. Go to the World Cup then as just a non-captain under the radar, just play. Anyway, we played this game against England and um, when we came back the week after, it was, it was announced that our captain was ruled out permanently. So I thought, oh my God, he's going to ask me to do it for World Cup because I'm going to be second in line. And then he asked me again and he said, come, on, come to the laptop a second. This is Warren now. So he took me over to where the video analysts were and um, he replayed the, this penalty that I just mentioned in the game, which we won. And, and that penalty, like we got possession back, kicked for the corner, we saw the game out, we beat England. We won the penalty and I wasn't involved in the penalty from a physical point of view, but he just said, he, he just put, looked at the top of the screen and from the top of the screen, I just came marching in like from the top towards the players who were involved in that penalty win. I was like punching the air, celebrating, going mad, picking guys up off the floor, like congratulating everyone. Then I went to our like fly half and then was like discussing about what we were going to do next, like our next phase of play for the next two minutes to close out the game. And then made that decision, kicked to the corner and we walked off. And then he closed the laptop and he just went, that's leadership and that's what I want you to do. It's not, it's not heading at meetings and doing speeches four or five times a week or doing like umpteen amounts of, of press interviews. I just want you to do what you do on the pitch. So I was like, yeah, great. I was like, I can do that. Then I kind of, what I quickly realized was when you, when people are given a leadership role, they think they have to do everything themselves or some, sometimes people think they have to do it all themselves and they need to show that, which is actually a bit naive really because you don't know everything. And I think it's actually a sign of strength and maturity, being able to delegate responsibility and put your hands up and be like, you know, I, I don't know that part. I don't know all the best kicking strategies. I don't know what's going on in the scrum and in the line out. So you need to have, for me, when I was playing, you might get the plaudits as captain, but I was like, there's probably about five or six people on that field to add as much influence on the game and the working week as myself. And I quickly learned that you have to have that team around you. And we used to meet every Monday morning as like a leadership group, talk about the things good and bad from the previous week, how you wanted the next week to look. And then suddenly it just took the pressure and the weight of captaincy off my shoulders massively because it wasn't me just contributing to meetings all the time. It was like a group of six of us. So I felt, yeah, I was captain for my 49 caps that I led the team, but I, I felt that there was five of us captain in that team, five or six of us captain that team at the same time. So yeah, if you are given a leadership role, don't fear that if you don't know something, it's a sign of weakness. It's actually good. And it actually develops leadership in other people who perhaps haven't had responsibility and you can bring them through a little bit and make them contribute to the environment. But don't feel you have to do everything yourself. You know, actually being able to delegate and get a team around you of other leaders who can really help you, I think was, um, I had to learn that pretty quick. I thought the first six months I didn't. And then after that, I quickly realized I needed a leadership group around me and that really did help me. You're so right about um, asking for help and delegating and that being actually a sign of maturity and strength, admitting that you don't know it all rather than, because yeah. I think I'm very prone to not asking for help and to just wanting to do everything myself. Um, and I feel that if I do kind of go, oh, actually, I'm a bit stuck on this or I need help or I'm not coping, it is that kind of ad admitting defeat almost. And actually yeah. at 22, learning and knowing that that wasn't a sign of weakness for you, that actually was a sign of leadership, was, that's a real turning point, isn't it? In a, in a young 22-year-old yeah. guy's life. It's like it's almost like a pride thing. I think for some people, they feel they have to do it. But then, you know, like if you look at it from the other side of the coin, to say like I was one of the senior players, other senior players who were like thirty to thirty-four, 
and I'm saying, oh, mate, do you mind taking this uh, defensive role on for me and like leading that for the boys because I'm not too comfortable in that right now. I don't mind doing X, Y, Z, but can you take this for me? And then like you're getting buy-in then from from other sort of senior players. Like, oh, yeah, no, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll contribute. And like if I had a young player come up to me being like, oh, Sam, can you help me with this? Then I'd, I'd be like, yeah, of course I would. A drop of a hat, I'd help him. So I think by, especially in a team environment, by bringing in people around you, you're just helping build that whole team ethos as well. So yeah, that definitely helped massively. It's difficult to talk about yourself and your own strengths, I suppose. But do you did you know then why Warren had said to you, you're going to be captain, you're 22 years old, there are guys who are 34, 35, <clears throat> but I want you to lead Wales? Yeah, so at the time I didn't. And I've never thought I was going to be a captain, even though I did captain Wales at under 18s, 19s and 20s. I was like, oh, I just do it because it looks good on my rugby CV as a graduate from the academy to try and get professional. They'll see, oh, this guy's captain Wales to semi-finals and junior World Cups and stuff. So he must be a good player. So like, I'll just do it and bite the bullet. I never saw what people saw in me, but it was probably only like till like years later, till I'm like mid-20s, where I suddenly realised, well, like there's a bit of a drinking culture in Wales before like my crop of players. So when I say my crop, those familiar with um, Welsh rugby and even just international rugby say like myself Jamie Roberts Lee Halfpenny John Davis you know, Toby Faletau Dan Bigger those sort of players but like, we were the sort of first group of like professional academy graduates who sort of like left school straight into academies never had to work like been paid from like 16 years of age to play professional rugby so like I was that first group first wave of professional players coming through since the game turned out like turned from amateur to pro I think Warren saw in me that like he saw a very diligent professional like t- real like, it's hard saying this about yourself but, like I was a, a real tough competitor like you know I, I really believed in myself and the team and I, I think he wanted that those traits and you know like my I trained like stink you know all these things like, all those professional traits to rub off on the team and I guess to a degree it, it would have and because there was a, a, another group of like young players with me kind of all on a similar mindset to myself we had that good mix of a lot of the young guys who sort of ruffle the feathers and rock the boat a little bit in a good way but then a lot of key senior experienced players who really bought into it as well and, and we brought in things in the World Cup like called the dry board so at the start of the World Cup, like so we had a three-month pre-season, we had a dry board with everyone's name as a magnet. And if you had a drink of alcohol, which was which wasn't it wasn't compulsory that you couldn't drink alcohol, but if you did drink alcohol, your name was taken from the dry side of the board to the wet side of the board, and you couldn't win the kitty at the end. So we all put in money, and then whoever was stood on the wet side on the dry side of the board still would win this big kitty at the end of the World Cup but it was pointless because so many boys stayed on the dry side of the board and stayed alcohol free and didn't drink we just ended up putting all the money into the kitty for like a a nice sound system for the gym or something but like it was then I realised that we had a lot of buy-in with it from the professional sort of mindset and like I've always loved that I've always sort of prided myself to try and be the best professional possible and I've always loved that so but Leah, that was kind of what I think Warren Gatlin saw in me and wanted to rub off on the rest of the team. And on professionalism as well, before we press record, me and you were both <laughs> talking about how much we love Johnny Wilkinson uh, for different reasons, I think. Uh, but he was someone that I looked up to um, very much so. And 2003 World Cup was sort of a day in my mind that will live with me forever. And it's probably that first moment where I realised just how much I loved sport and that sport was going to be a part of my life, hopefully for as long as I lived. And for you as well, looking up to someone like Johnny Wilkinson, who was the absolute pinnacle of professionalism. And he did everything exactly to the book, obsessively so. And for you, that was kind of like, I guess, the standard that you lived to and trained to. Well, that's what I was like. I do think a lot of people, not like bully, but any stretch of imagination, but like in a, in a friendly way, my mates and people would take the mick out of me when I was in school because I was so adamant I was going to play for the Lions. 
at number seven, I was doing things which no other teenager my age would be willing to do. Oh, I, I mean, like, because of, say, for Johnny's example, because I love the professionalism that he displayed from, and a lot of the players he would have played with have come from the amateur era as well. So he would have stood out like a sore thumb, being as professional as he was in 2003, even though he was, even though rugby was well into its professionalism. I always looked up to the, the level of professionalism that he displayed and commitment to his training and, and being who he is, a rugby player and being a role model and being in the public eye, like, you know, never put a foot wrong. And there's plenty of sports we've seen, they don't really realise how much the magnifying glass is on them really and how much how many people and young people look up to them and I, I don't mean to go off a tangent but little things like this on this like I was in a pool uh, when I when I retired and I was just doing a little bit of swimming just keep fit and there was a woman like just wouldn't stop looking at me from about 20 30 <laughs> yards away and um okay. and these are things that, going? Uh, yeah, no, it, it makes it'll make sense okay um, and uh like but the, the point of this uh, story is when you're playing you don't realise these things so I was like oh she keeps staring at me and I didn't think she liked me but I was just like what's she staring at I don't know and I swam a few more lengths and eventually she came over to me after about 10 minutes I thought oh here we go it's going to be the, like a really awkward request or something um, and she said oh hi Sam so, really sorry to interrupt you while you're swimming but um, just wanted to send my primary school teacher and I just wanted to thank you for all the years that you've been a good role model because whenever we have like uh, a role model day or celebrity day all the kids want to be you so I just want to thank you for just being such a good role model and I was like oh my god I felt I was always like welling up a little bit and like that's the things I miss like and like, you, you can't take lightly the influence that you'll have as a professional sports person on kids and children because what they see on the telly like they that, like you're their icons their role models and it might be hard to believe because you just think you're a normal guy from Wales or England wherever you're from but people look up to you and you've got to realize that responsibility and I think a lot of professional sportsmen don't but like Johnny for example did and that, like all these traits that we're talking about I thought he, he was the epitome of it and that's why I think in my eyes he's one of the greatest rugby players that's ever lived but yeah I've always looked up to the standards that he set and yeah that was what I tried to aspire to. I completely agree with you. 2011 did bring more challenges for you, didn't it? The Rugby World Cup being one of them. And you're smiling now, but I imagine it maybe took a few years for you to be able to look back on the Rugby World Cup and smile. Um, for those who perhaps don't know what happened or didn't see the match or haven't gone on YouTube and looked at the clip, can you just explain what happened at that World Cup in that semi-final? I laugh because like, I'm, I was 22, just turned 23 actually. I had my 23rd birthday the week before and they brought in a birthday cake for me in training and I didn't eat it. So I was like, I can't eat cake six days before a semi-final. Like, I just like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was so, like, I was just a bit, I was a little bit OTT looking back. I definitely calmed down. But for those who didn't realise, I was 22. Wales had reached the semi-final of the World Cup. We were playing France. We were favourites to win. We ended up losing by a point nine eight. And it was always dubbed as the one that we missed because people thought we would have had a really good go in the final. And we were just we were on this crest of a wave where I was playing really well. But I got sent off after 17 minutes for a tackle, which I didn't intend to be malicious, but it turned out to be quite malicious. But I, I played a position which gives away the most penalties out of any position ever. And players on average would give away three penalties a game. But I looked at the stats of top players who played number seven in international level. They averaged two, three penalties a game. I only averaged one a game. I had one red card, which was in the semi-final. I only had about two yellows other than that. And they were because of technical infringements. So I wasn't a dirty player. I'm not a dirty guy at all. Play hard, but I'm not a dirty guy. So I got sent off in the World Cup and we lost by a point. So I laugh now because I realised I'm like, for the rest of my life in Wales, I'm always going to, whichever rugby club I turn up at, for whatever reason, I'm always going to get asked a red card question. And I laugh because I'll go to a supermarket and somebody might not have the courage to say it to my face, but somebody will be over the 
the other aisle because they might have walked past me like this and they've gone around the other aisle and they're like oh, I didn't want to say anything to them they'll shout it was never a red card because like so many Welsh still support me in it like I remember going to the changing afterwards thinking like I, can't, I thought it was going to be like on a much lower profile scale the David Beckham incident in the was it 98 World yeah. Cup I can't remember which World Argentina, Cup it was when he kicked yeah. the player he yeah Simeone and fl- and yeah, he kicked out, Simeone he? I think wouldn't it mm-hmm. and he got red card and he was a villain like he was absolutely I mean Beckham's a hero now isn't he but at that moment in time he was he was the, the papers anyway they didn't to be a complete villain I was in the change after being like oh my god like I'm just going to be hated back home because I've lost us like our best chance of getting to a World Cup final and I'm not saying because it, it was me if we had any of our 15 players stay on the pitch like I'm pretty sure that would have made it the one point difference to win that game particularly because we played with 14 men for such a long time so like, I, I still get that now all the time and I was just dreading going home, but I'd never come back home to such a, like, like a hero. And I never realised because people, I think people hate the petulant footballers who complain when they get sent off. And the first thing I thought when I got sent off was, right, there's going to be like millions of people watching because it's obviously a live broadcast all around the world. Like, and I was walking off the pitch. So I thought like, whatever you do, because I knew the camera would be on me following me walk off. Whatever you do, don't swear. Because my mum would go absolutely mad if I'm walking off. I'm going like f in this. Thing. Like I know my mum would just clip me on the back of the head, you know. But I thought, right, don't swear, don't complain. There's nothing you can do. The referee's never going to apologise and put the car back in his pocket. And I just had to sit on the side of the pitch for about ten minutes while this camera was in my face, waiting for me to show some sort of like remorse or whatever. I had to keep it together anyway. Like I remember going back home. Um, like I did like five hours of press on my first day back at trip. And I mean, I honestly, I did five hours without a toilet break because everybody from all over the country wanted to come and talk about the red card. We even went, um, when I had my disciplinary hearing, we walked down, and that, this was actually quite soon after the semi-final. We tried to get me off for the third place playoff and I walked down this road with cafes and bars and it was full of fans. So they were obviously about to watch the next game and uh, like mixture of jerseys, gold, red, white England, green Irish, red Welsh, like, you know, New Zealand, loads of mixture of fans. I said to I looked at Warren Gatton, I was like, we've got to turn around. Because I was with like, our lawyer, media officer, team manager. We all suited and ready to go to this like hearing, disciplinary hearing in some lawyer's office, solicitor's office. And I was like, we've got to turn around. This is going to be savage. And I hadn't left the hotel for a couple of days. Anyway, we, we can't. So we, we just walked down. And then like, like, um, like a Mexican wave of applause, the first cafe saw us all started applauding and cheering. As I walked down, everybody just stood up and started applauding and cheering because they felt sorry for myself and the team and the decision. And I had the same went back home. There was a song out there. There's a song, John Sloop B, and they, the Welsh fan redubbed it. With Sam, our captain, we'll bring the cup home. And um, this song went viral during the 2011 World Cup. And I was in my house. There's people turning up outside my house with their car windows down, like chanting my name, playing this Sam, our captain song. And I was like, oh my God. I had people in supermarkets running up to me, middle-aged women hugging me. Like, we didn't, so it was, honestly, it was, oh, it was wild. And it, it kind of just like, everyone sort of felt sorry for me. And then I remember I was going to trip. But during this time in the World Cup, um, somebody from a particular newspaper turned up my parents' house and they said, oh, how is Sam Cope, this is before I got sent off, how is Sam Cope being in a World Cup with his granddad being badly ill in hospital. My parents were like, well, that's kind of like, I'm not going to speak about that on my doorstep. You know, that's kind of like inappropriate. And at the time during the World Cup, my granddad was, was badly ill. And like, I was one of those kids, I grew up as a teenager every Friday. My mates might go out. Um, they'd be like, are oh, you coming out? And I got a twin brother. Me and my twin brother, now nah, we're staying in, my granddad's coming over. We used to watch Super League together, Friday night boxing, but we're all big sports fans. I'd stay in, I'd watch sport with him for a few hours, he'd come over to my house for some food. And like my grandma died when I was young, so he was on his own, so I always wanted to spend time with him. So like I was quite close to my granddad, and then I remember coming home from the World Cup after the red card, and he was badly ill in hospital. He had cancer and all sorts, and 
And, I, and then I was joined the training about maybe a month later, so after the World Cup, and um, I was doing loads of interviews, and all it was was just like red card, red card. I was like, oh, this is driving me mad here. But I looked at my phone, I got a text when I was at a traffic light. Remember, I stood still, so I wouldn't answer my phone moving, of course. <laughs> I was at a traffic light, my phone went off. So you just looked down at the phone, you know, it flashes at the sort of text. And it was my dad, he just said, granddad's died. So I remember going to training, and like I just didn't care about rugby for that day. Like I was probably off, I was off. Off, off of the clouds and with the fairies and my, my coaches were like talking to me but I probably looked quite vacant but that day I had an interview with um, with the BBC actually with Jason Mohammed and he had no idea obviously so I did this interview after training it was all set up cameras there there was like it was in my local rugby club actually there was all people around I was like all oh, right we're going to tease like we asked Sam a couple of questions about form and the blues and we just get into what we're actually going to use which is the red card question so he asked me about the red card he said how how do you cope with the red card and obviously you can do a pin drop so everyone's like oh Sam's going to talk live about the red card and um, I remember saying to him I was like Actually, I, I, did, I know it was a massive thing in Welsh rugby. Like, it was probably our best chance to get to a World Cup final that we've ever had, and we were playing amazing. I know the fans were devastated, but I said, My granddad died this morning, and it makes me realize that there's much more important things in life than rugby and its health and family. And that actually put it to bed for me. So, and it did. I said, So, because of that's happened, I can, be, I can put it aside and I can just move on. And that's like, and that's genuinely true. And that puts things, and I use this word perspective a lot when you're playing, like that just put a massive amount of perspective into the game. And I was gutted about it. I remember going home, watching this TV uh, program, Wales TV program, and it was showing that it was like a review of the Wales' World Cup, but it showed the semi-final. I was like, oh, I don't want to watch it because I haven't seen anything back. You know, I've never voluntarily watched the tackle back. And we, my parents are like, oh, let's watch it, let's see what they say. And uh, I, I watched it and then they showed the stadium because the stadium was like 9.30 in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning. So it was in New Zealand, 12-hour time difference, 11-hour time difference. And it showed, we had 60,000 Welsh people in the main stadium to watch that game on the screen. It was just, it was just enormous back home. And, and then it showed the reaction of the fans when it showed I was sent off in the red card and it was like silence. And then I suddenly like just like broke down. So I was like, oh, I suddenly realised how many people I let down. But this all happened before my granddad's passing. So that was just a, like, as, obviously I wish he was still around. Like, but that really put to bed for me, the red card. Whenever anything bad happened, like in rugby or whatever, like you just think back to like family and health. And that was it for me. And that really sort of, yeah, allowed me to sort of move on from, from that moment. Gosh, well, I'm so sorry about your granddad and, and that it happened at a time of such heightened emotion as well. But you, you are right that the sort of it's all I think this year's taught us that all those little things that we worry about that ultimately don't matter you know in five years they we won't even remember them we won't think about them the red card will probably (laughs) follow you but it won't be this burning point in your brain that will keep you up at night and actually it's kind of health and family and certainly things this year with the coronavirus pandemic has taught us that as well that there are so many more important things to life than kind of those little daily worries or daily struggles or, or you know, oh, there's just the little niggles that ultimately don't mean anything. No, I think maybe it's probably for perhaps younger people because obviously the older you get, the more you go through from an adversity point of view, whether it's like losses with your family and stuff. But like, I had a question actually on my Instagram the other day. I do like a little Q&A on Instagram every now and then. So I do, I do like a little fitness page and somebody said, how do you cope with injury? Like, how do you cope with that mentally? And like, I remember when I got my first injury, I remember the surgeon rang me up and told me I broke my jaw and I was going to miss a tour to New Zealand, which I was gutted because it was like uh, early in my career and I wanted to really sort of play against New Zealand away from home and sort of lay down my marker about what I was about. I remember I, I broke down again because I was a gutter, I couldn't go. And then suddenly, like, when I was getting in, I've had seven operations in my career, then all my other operations, like, I didn't respond to that at all because I replied to this thing. So I said... When you play rugby, it's an occupational hazard. No one's going to have a, a, 
a career at 10 for 10 years plus at professional level without an operation don't want to sound like I'm scary but if you're going to be a regular first team player you can't play 10 years on off it's impossible these days it's just part of playing rugby and also and like this is from doing like charitable work and, and meeting people which is one of these another story we'll come on to there's people out there living with terminal illnesses like a rugby injury, I know plenty of people who would trade for my injury at the click of the fingers. People who've been given the ultimatum, they've got maybe two months left to live. Like, what's a rugby injury? Like, you have an op, you get over it. It's fine. Like, and like you say, with COVID, people go mad about having to stay at home, locked down for three, four weeks. I'm like, sometimes you just need to take yourself out of your little bubble and put yourself into a bubble of what some people are really going through in the world. And they've been given, like, like I mentioned, I met plenty of people, like young teenagers in cancer hospitals who've been told they've got four weeks left to live and they go to bed on their own in the pitch black like staring to the abyss knowing that the end is coming like that's the situation some people are in in this world and i think you just need to be able to just take a step back like take a deep breath and think right actually and maybe uh, i know some people have gone through covid and stuff but if you're healthy and you're at home and you're with your family i'm like it could be much worse we could be in a trench in 1920 in a dry rotten digestive biscuit like at war like come on now have some perspective i don't mean to sound too passionate about this but yeah i do think that you need to have a little bit of perspective sometimes i completely agree with you that yeah if you're if you're okay and you're at home with a roof over your head and you've got your family around you and they're all healthy things could be worse um and i think that's definitely something to hold on to especially with kind of you know what's to come in 2021 and beyond um you mentioned there about your work with charities and meeting children and teenagers um who are terminally ill and i know that is something that happened to you just before the 2013 lions tour which also incidentally was your your first test jersey as well so yeah, I guess that's two points in one there, isn't it, for you? Yeah, that one kind of crossed with, with and he, he popped up in my head again then when I was thinking of perspective. But just before I was, it was my first tour on the Lions, 2013. I was at training at the Blues and our head coach said to me and Lee Halfpenny, another player, high-profile player who was selected for the Lions, so boys, there's a guy in hospital. Would you mind going to see him? Like you, you're his two favourite players and he'd love you to love to meet you guys. So, um, and he left us both a voicemail. So remember like me and Lee text each other like, oh, when should we do this visit, mate? Should we do it this week? Because we've got a game on Saturday. Like it's going to be a bit crammed. I was like, oh, let's just do it. Like let's go Thursday. Let's just go get it. Otherwise, like, you know, something might happen. We might miss it, whatever. Let's go this week after training. So we finished training we both drove down to the hospital in Cardiff and we went into this um, went into this room and we met this boy and I, I don't know how to explain it without sounding like disrespectful, but like he, he was like unrecognizable as a human, like no offense. Like he had so many tumors and um, like skin conditions. Like, I mean, like lost, lost limbs. Like it was awful. Like what I saw and his parents were there. And we walked in, but his room was covered in posters and Welsh rugby banners and scarves and jerseys. And he was obviously a massive fan. He couldn't really talk, so we couldn't have a conversation with him. But he could see, and he was all knowing. Like he knew what was going on. He could watch rugby, and he, and he loved rugby. So me and Lee spent like you know we just spent like twenty minutes with him and his parents talking, have some photos, and just reminiscing a bit about rugby and things like that. We went back to training anyway the next week. And the coach sort of texted us then one evening and said, oh, boys, thanks so much for fitting it in because he passed away like a lot sooner than they thought. And me and Lee were like, thank goodness we went sooner rather than later. So we could have like at least tried to put a smile on his face. But we went on the Lions tour then about a month later. And I actually said that story to the players when I had like Captain Speaks normally start the tour. And I was just like, imagine like, like, because I was feeling like bogged down with the responsibility of going on the Lions tour as captain and representing the Lions. We hadn't won since 97. So it was like, what was that, 16 years or so. I explained this story about this boy on there. And I was like, could you imagine if you suddenly 
if he could be reborn into one of our bodies and be given one of our, like the opportunity that we've got now, like we are so, so lucky to be in this situation and privileged. And that's why we can't let this chance go because we don't realize how privileged we are when there's certain people out there. And that was just, a, and again, that, that gave me a lot of perspective and suddenly like all the hype and the pressure on the tour, I was like, I'm just going to go out and just like appreciate the situation that I've been given. Like you've worked hard to get there. Don't get me wrong. And like you've sacrificed not to get there, but there's so, you've got, so many hundreds of thousands if not millions of people wanting to be in our shoes it's an unbelievable privilege and yeah that was another another moment that always sticks out sticks out in my mind for me and that's that's so refreshing to hear as well that somebody because you were just 24 then youngest ever lions captain as well and that in that moment you could step back and say instead of getting as you said bogged down and kind of stuck on the pressure and responsibility that was on your shoulders and kind of feeling oh why me you know I'd rather be anywhere else right now than feeling these nerves and this tension you actually said no we need to embrace this because we are so privileged and so lucky and I think it's very easy to lose sight of the privilege and luck and chance and fortune that we have in life and it's it's often moments like you've just described that brings it home crashing home once again that got not it could be worse and you know that actually we're incredibly lucky I was playing for the Blues uh, Cardiff Blues my club and uh, I was toward middle to later end of my career and I had a young player who was sat next to me and we were just getting changed pre-match and he went do you still get nervous and I said what's that sorry because it was from nowhere he said do you still get nervous like do you still feel the pressure playing these games because like you know Blues you might play in front of on a good day 12,000 people like Wales Lions, you'll play in front of like, you know, 70, 80 and then like 5 million on telly, 10 million on telly. He said, do you still get nervous for these games? I went, yeah, like absolutely. Of course you do because it shows you care. And I'm not really like a quotey person, but I did read Michael Johnson's book called Gold Rush. And I love Michael Johnson as well. I loved his mindset. And anyone who's an aspiring professional sports person, like read Michael Johnson's book. And um, he just said about pressure, and I thought you summed it up perfectly. He said, and my, I said this quote to my brother, and he's not really, he said, what's that mean? I said, well, uh, I explained it, but it, it really hit home for me. He just said, pressure, the shadow of great opportunity. So if you're feeling pressure, it's often because there's something really great to be achieved. So rather than worry about what could go wrong, be excited for what could go right and achieving the carrot that's dangling in front of you. And that's what, if there's pressure there, it's because you care about it. There's something good to be achieved. And so like, you know, there's two ways you react to, to pressure, isn't it? You know, like it's kind of like the, the fight or flight thing. You know, you get those big games and then some people go, he's not a big game player or he is a big game player. So what does that mean? Well, if he's not a big game player, you put him in the pressure cauldron of like an international game and they go into their shell because they're just like, it's like, like I said, fight or flight. They just flight. They, they don't want to know. They don't want to come out. They, they, they haven't got that competitor edge inside them. Whereas the real competitors out there, the ones who do well, when the pressure's on and you're backed up into a corner like an animal, what do you do? You, well, there's only one way of survival. You've got to come out and you've got to fight. And that's what I think all the top competitors have. When the, when the ultimate pressure is on, that's when they know they have to deliver. And you just got to slap yourself across the face and do it. And Sometimes you might need a teammate or a coach or a parent or sibling to give you a nudge. Sometimes you can self-motivate, but you do need to go out of your comfort zone often to, to be able to achieve things. You can't just cruise along in life and hope things are going to happen for you. Unless you're born into a billionaire's family, then all right, well done. But that's like an absolute minority of us. And even that probably is not as satisfying as it sounds. You know, you've got to go through pressure to achieve things. And the people say like, oh, I know mental health's a big thing now. And I always say to people like pressure, anxiety, like nervousness they're all completely normal human behaviors and if you're going through it it's normal and the chances are that 99.9% of people have gone through it all as well but once you get through the other side and you look back you'll be a much better person for it so they're yeah, going through those moments I think 
help define you as a person, develop you at the same time. And I guess having those moments as well that just give you an incredible perspective on your own life. Like, like you said, meeting this, this 10-year-old terminally ill boy. And I know for you, that first Lions jersey was huge, <clears throat> wasn't it? That was kind of a moment for you that was the culmination of everything that had gone before. All those moments of professionalism we've talked about, the standards you set yourself, it all came down to 2013. Well, so when I finished, um, BBC wanted to do a documentary on me and I watched back the documentary. I watched the first showing of it, like the premiere thing. But what they do is they do a documentary, like they'll interview my dad for three hours, my mum for three hours, my brother, my wife. And they only use like a minute, two minutes of each clip. But I don't know what they're saying in those interviews. I just got to trust that my parents aren't going to stitch me up or whatever. But, and <laughs> I have no editorial bus. control. I know exactly. I have no editorial control of what comes out. But I met the guys in the production team. I really trusted them. I was like, oh, no, I think you're going to do a great job. So we did this documentary. I didn't really want to do it. Again, because I didn't want it to be like the Sam Warburton show. But they were like, oh, this would be really nice for... I mean, we had my daughter at the time. It'd be nice for your daughter to grow up and probably watch back one day. And you can show her like what you did. Because I don't talk to her about what I've done or whatever. And it was quite funny. Only the other day she realised at four, because I was getting... I, somebody asked me for a photo in front of her. And she said, why are they asking you for a photo, Dad? And I said, oh, I don't know. Maybe they like my car or something. I always like make it to something else. She went, I know. I think they saw you, she calls it rumpy rugby. <laughs> I think they saw you doing rumpy on the TV the other day. I went, oh, you're right, Anna, that's probably what it is. And she's only just clicking, but they were like, oh, it would be nice to show her when you're older. So I thought, yeah, okay, I'll do the documentary. But it started off with my dad's voice. I didn't know what he was going to say. And I told this story, but I didn't know my dad remembered it. And he just said, when I was, when Sam was 14, I asked him what he wanted to be. And, uh, and he says, and, and I remember the story and uh, I thought, Flip, my dad remembered. He told me, he said in the documentary what it was. And they went into the documentary. But the story was, he came home from work. He was a fireman. And his mate from the fire service had a piece of paper. He said, oh, my son's doing some homework. Can you just ask your boys to fill it out? Tend uh, to write whatever they want. It doesn't matter. So I looked at this piece of paper and it just said, uh, name, age, sports, position, and ambition. So I just wrote down Sam Warburton or Kennedy Warburton as my full name. Sam Kennedy Warburton, sport, rugby union, position, open side flanker. And then it just said ambition. And I'm not saying I've achieved this, but I'm just saying the story exactly as it is. I just wrote down an ambition, British and Irish Lions rugby legend. And I gave it back to my dad. And I remember he said, what are you doing? <laughs> I said, well, that's, that's what I want to be. I don't just want to be one of like a few hundred or however many people who play for Lions. I want to be one of the best Lions ever to have played. And that's what he said in the documentary. And he said, you know, I asked him what he wanted to be. And he said, I, I want to be a Lions legend. And like when I was... 14, 15 for my birthday, I asked for a multi-gym. Uh, I clubbed up all my pocket money over a, the course of like a year with my twin brother. We had a multi-gym put in our garage. I used to train in the garage like stink like all the time. And that Christmas, I asked my dad for a lion shirt with a number seven on the back. It was the official lion shirt with a number seven on the back. And I was just, I had to play seven for the lions. That was like my thing. I used to train in the garage, used to train at school lunchtimes. I used to go running late at night when no one was around so I could get fit. When I was in school, I swapped like my jam and honey sandwiches, like tins of tuna and my pack of crisps for fruit. And I was like, I am, like, I got to be in the best possible shape. I, I dedicate myself unusually from a young age. Don't get me wrong. Like, yeah, you have a drink of alcohol with your mates every now and then on birthdays. I enjoy myself. I wasn't living like a monk for 10 years, but I was living a professional life from like the age of 15, in my eyes anyway. So I committed myself like unusually quite a lot. And I guess fast forward to like 2013, 
Lions tour and they did the jersey presentation and they always do this for the big games like a test match for example so it was the first test and I was picked as number seven they brought in Sue McGeegan like Lions legend as a surprise to give out our jerseys and they saved my jersey till last as captain so they went from one to 23 Missed out number seven. Gave out number 23, then last and not least, like Captain Sam Walton and Ian McGeek gave me my shirt. So like, you know, it's, quite, it's always quite subdued after that moment. Everyone's got their shirt, the meeting's finished, we're about to have dinner the eve of the first test. And everyone's sort of walking around, non-players are congratulating everybody, like the, the squad and things. And the kit man came up to me and he said, oh, Sam, like I know normally you go into the dressing room and I got it all ready. Like everyone's kit is there, one to 23 around the dressing room and you just walk, you just turn up on match day and all your stuff's there. Do you want me to take the jerseys back off the boys now and I'll put them up in the dressing room like normal? Or do you want to like keep on to it and take it to the game yourself? I remember saying, mate, there's no way you're taking this off me now. Like, this is mine and I'm going to take it to the game myself. I didn't have dinner straight away. I went straight back to my room on my own. And uh, I went upstairs and I laid the jersey out flat in my bedroom. And because when I was 15 and my dad gave me that shirt, he did say to me after about six months, where's that line shirt gone? Because when I bought it, he said, it cost me a fair bit of money. I haven't seen you wear it for six months. I went wore it like non-school uniform days, training around the house or everywhere. I remember when I was 15, I said to myself, Dad, I'll put it away because the next time i got to wear it's got to be the real thing. I'm not going to wear another line shirt I have the real thing. So I went back to my room after this shirt presentation. I laid the jersey out flat on the bed, like number seven facing up. And I like smoothed all the creases out of it and stuff. And I stared at it for about like 10 seconds. I just couldn't believe I finally had this Lions Test number seven shirt. And then I sort of left the room. And then I went back and had another look at it just before I, the door closed. I stared at it, left the room for a third and final time and generally just stared at this jersey. And that, that for me was just like, I was 24. That was probably like nine, 10 years of like, I realized that sacrifice, hard work. Like, because people say, would I have got nervous playing when I was younger? I'm like, I got nervous, but I never doubted my ability because I was like, that was something arrogant. I always believed in myself. But I knew I was physically and athletically good. Like from a genetic point of view, I was quite fortunate. I'm quick, powerful, tall, strong. I knew I was good genetically, but that's nothing without having the hard work, having the professionalism, the diligence, training hard, eating well, sleeping well, doing the right things, and have and the willpower and the belief. I, I look at an opposite number and think he hasn't done what I've done. He, he can't be as good as me. He's not. He's genetically not as good as me. He hasn't got my belief. He hasn't trained as hard as me. He, he, he can't be as good as me. I don't want to sound arrogant. I never speak like this when I was playing because it was so arrogant. But that was just the mindset I was in and I had for like 10 years. And that's why that lion shirt kind of like, that's what that like sort of symbolizes for me. It was just 10 years of sacrifice and dedication. I finally got the goal of what I wanted. So for me, from an individual perspective, that was the best moment of my career. And that's when I realized that hard work and diligence, you know, got me to the top. I love that the best moment of your career isn't, a moment on the pitch it's not a try it's not no. you know that Chilangi tackle the best moment of your career is a quiet moment of reflection on your own in a hotel room staring at a jersey on your bed yeah that's I know, it's weird. the pinnacle it is weird <laughs> it is weird then like for that moment was like just like 10 years just flashed by that one moment you know because everything I did was if I was playing for my school on a Saturday morning at the age of 16 17 it was with the Lions in mind if I was playing like I only would ever play for Cardiff Blues and for Wales even though I'm you know, I could have moved clubs and I was qualified to play for other countries. But So I was only ever going to play for the Blues and Wales. So I'm very proud of my heritage. But I wanted to do those things. But above all, I had to play for Lions. So when I had my first Blues game or my first Wales camp, people would be like, oh, are you happy? I'd be like, well, no, because I'm not going to be happy until I'm... A, I sound so arrogant, but I'm not going to be happy until I play for the Lions and be a Lions legend. Like, because you know, when you've, you've got to set the bar so high, you don't just want to be the best player in your school. You, you can't just be the best player in your, in your city which might have 25 secondary schools at your age group. 
You've got to be the best guy in your whole country for that age group and England and Scotland and Ireland and over a 15-year age range. You've got to be the single best guy to get in that shirt. And that, you're not going to get in there by accident. Like, you know, you've got to be able to put all these other competitors to bed. That doesn't happen by fluke. You know, you get my, my granddad always said this. He always said loads of good things to me, but he'd always say, you get out in life what you put in. And I always used to remember that. And, he, and he's dead true. Whenever I've done something good, it's because I put tend to put a lot of effort into it. Like it's not by fluke or by chance, you know. So I do really live by you know a lot of those things. And they are such good lessons for any young aspiring rugby players to listen to now and to realise if you've got a dream at 15, if you stick at it and if you work and work and work and yeah, genetics may be on your side, then it can be achieved. And you set that goal for yourself at 15 years old and you wrote it down on a bit of paper and you made it happen. And don't get me wrong, there was players better than me. Like I was obviously one of the better kids, of course, but like there was players at a professional level who were fitter than me. There was players who were stronger than me, but like I was just... I was just probably willing to do more than they were, like to put more effort in than they were. So I had a good head start. But I always just like, you know, hard work, big talent all day, like all day. I played with players. I played with one guy in particular as a teenager who was the most gifted player I've ever played with, but he didn't make it. But I can't help but think if he had my mindset, he would have played for Wales when he was 18. But, you know, unless you have that, you've got a couple, say I see a good young player I see a good young player. I think I'm pretty good at spotting a good young player. And uh, the first, I, see, I have a great game. He'd be brilliant. And I can see he's athletically good. You know, he's quick, explosive, powerful, high skill level. First thing I'll say though, and if he's at school level or a young guy at pro level, first I'll say to a coach, I chat to him, say, he looks good. I said, what's he like though? What's he, is he a good pro? Like, what's his mindset like? And sometimes they say, oh, he loves a drink, likes the women a bit. And I'm thinking, oh, he's probably going to have a short-lived career. Like, he might have, to, he might have a couple of years at the top but then it'll catch him out. Or they'll say top pro, like really good professional, really hard worker, tough competitor. And I'm like, great. He's got like, you can couple the, the physical attributes with the mental attributes. When you put that together, you're going to get a top player. And that's what all your top players are. You've got to be physically physically good and you've got to be mentally very good as well. And obviously the mental side of the game, I think can be underestimated a bit and in life in general. And it's kind of been highlighted now but you have to couple the physical with the mental to get to the top as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we'll move on to your final moment. Um, it's quite, quite a big one, having kids. Um, well, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one. That one. Yeah. <laughs> Off the pitch, away from rugby. Um, and actually, looking through your Instagram, it's very clear how fam- family-orientated you are and how much you love your kids, your wife, how important they are to you as a unit. And there was one um, caption you put on a photo, which was, three years ago, I started my dream job. And that was, I guess, for your daughter's third birthday. And I love the <laughs> fact that you are... As we said, British and Irish Lions legend, Wales captain, but your dream job is becoming a father. So was that something you knew you wanted from a relatively younger age, was that you wanted kids and a family and that unit to be together around Um, you? No, not particularly. I mean, I'm from a very close family myself. So my mum and my dad, they made a massive effort to you know, with our family. And I, I look back now, I'm like, oh, I was lucky. I grew up in a very tight, immediate family. So my twin brother literally lives 30 yards behind me over the road that way. Um, my mum and dad lived like a one minute car drive out and left. And my sister's in between us. So like, we're all still really close. So we grew up as a close family. So I wanted to have that close family. But when I was a young player, I was a very, it sounds like a not a very nice word, but I was a very selfish player person when you're a young professional, because you, you kind of have to be, you make time for your family, but yeah, yeah. You, you have to be selfish in a good way, you know, and, and your family support that, you know, they get it. So I was very selfish as a young player. But then when I got older and I had my daughter, and I suddenly realized, like, so I, I, the, the, the telling moment was when um, 
on the day I decided I officially I, I retired in my head, I knew for a fact. So I came home, my knees were, were really sore, and I, I couldn't even bounce on the trampoline. My daughter, because my knees were that bad, and she was I was on all fours, and she said, "And I'm fine now." Because it makes you realise when you're not hitting 80, 19 stone blokes 100 times a week, it's actually you start to feel quite normal again. You know, it's very unnatural playing rugby what it does to your body. But I was on the trampoline after this day's training, and she was like, "Daddy, get up, get up!" Because she loves when I hold her hands. We bounce on the trampoline, and I couldn't stand on the trampoline and bounce, so my knees were hurting. And I actually swore in front of her. I, I said the f word because, and I never swear in front of her because I was so angry that I couldn't even do this trivial thing with my daughter and then I couldn't I remember going back in the house trying to go up the stairs and I was like you got to go up the stairs yourself because I can hold her and carry up the stairs which I normally would do I then suddenly realised I was like the, the risk of playing rugby didn't outweigh the reward of a good family life like I want to be like an active dad an active granddad which I like to think I am an active dad now I do loads of it which is great but I didn't just want to hang on and keep playing for the five, six years to the detriment of my body and, and be like, you see some extra tired players. You see their knees at the state of 40, 50. I'm like, I don't want to be that guy. Like, and then I, that, that just, like having kids just put rugby, again, put, put rugby to the side. And I realised that I probably want to be, it's more important to me to be a good dad than to be a good rugby player. Um, and I, I love kids now. And like, say I got another boy now and say like the school run. I love the school run. And people go, oh, that'll, that'll wear off. You'll hate that. And I'm like, no, I'm different. Like, I just love, like, the best moments of my week is when I'm, like, going into school and I'm picking Anna up from school, my daughter, and she's there with, like, you know, kids, they all look so cute when they got their massive oversized coats on, their bags are strapped up over their shoulders and they're all looking around. And she sees me and she waves at me and then she comes up to me and she runs up to me and she gives me a hug. I'm like, oh, that's the best part of my week, you know, picking her up from school. And I just love that. And there's a lot of people I've spoken to who've like done very well in their careers. Like, you know, not just rugby, I'm talking like business-wise when you just by meeting people doing what you do. And I talk about family and they come up to me afterwards, they say, oh, you're absolutely right. They say, I, I worked way too hard when my kids were young and I wish I could have those days back. And those people you often see are fantastic grandparents because they really appreciate the younger years of their kids. And, and I take that advice. You know, they say spend as much time as you can because it'll be gone before you know it. And already my daughter was four and it felt like yesterday I was in the hospital where you know, my, my wife gave birth to her. I guess flying along rapidly. So yeah, I'm going to make sure I, I enjoy those moments. I got, I'm fortunate I got the luxury I can and I can pick and choose a little bit, you know, my work schedule. So I'm very grateful for that. But at the same time, I think, well, I put the work in, you know, I put the work in over the last 10, 15 years to get to this point to be able to spend time with my family. So yeah, I, I really do cherish my family and that again a lot of this is perspective you know i'm quite like a deep thinker you know under the surface but all this thing all this just gives me perspective on life really because you don't want to be sat without like tanning too dark you, you don't want to be sat in your deathbed lying there when you're 80 years of age thinking i wish i did that when i was 30 or like i wish i did that because i like my, i mean that's another thing my granddad said to me when i was like younger i used to panic about school a little bit I used to get very nervous i'd go to secondary school i went to a massive secondary school of two and a half thousand kids from a nice quaint primary school and uh, I remember, he, and I used to get very nervous about things. And I remember he said to me, and he was like probably like in his eighties at this point. And we were probably on a Friday night watching sport, and he was like, "You worry about the wrong things in life." And I was like, "What do you mean?" He said, "I wish I could be given the gift of another twenty, thirty, forty years now as an eighty-year-old man." Because I realised, looking back, when I was twenty, thirty, forty. I, I was worrying about the wrong things in life. You might worry about needing to leave a meeting to go to the loo. Or if you're running five minutes late, you know, he'd always say better, better late than dead. You know, he's like, don't, like, don't worry about this. Like you mentioned at the start, at the start of this, you worry about the complete wrong things in life. And like, I do try and think and try and live. Like if I was an eight year old guy, been told I haven't got long left, but I've been, I'm now 32 and I've been given that chance to be 32 again. What would I do with my life? You know, that's how you got to try and live. Like, 
So that's the message to kind of try and like spread to people. Don't just waste your time and just cruise along. Try and do something tangible. Try and spend time, whatever is important to you. It might not be family. It might be work. It might be a project you have. But just but you've got to try something because you don't want to look back with any regrets because before you know it, it'll be gone. So that's kind of how I try to, to live my life, really. I think perspective is the key word for you to come from this, isn't yeah. it? That actually the lessons yeah, you've is. learned have very much given you perspective in life, that there's more to rugby, that having a family is what's important. And also don't sweat the small stuff. Um, no. And big moments in life teach you that, that you suddenly get that perspective of more to our lives than, yeah, like run. I, I get so freaked out if I'm late. I hate being late, <laughs> as we said <laughs> earlier. So do I. I, panic I freak. Well. I can't stand yeah. being in traffic. It stresses me out so much. And yeah, actually, <laughs> it's ridiculous because it doesn't matter, really, unless you're going to miss your on air time or something. It really doesn't matter if you're five, 10 minutes late. And it's about, exactly. yeah, not worrying about the small things like that that won't matter in a week let alone five six years but yeah like it is morbid but when you are on your deathbed I kept saying this to myself during lockdown am I gonna be on my deathbed and say oh I'm gutted that I couldn't work this event here or I couldn't work this event here or I wasn't at the Monaco Grand Prix or whatever else or actually am I gonna look back and say I'm so grateful for the time I was gifted during that lockdown where I could spend it with family I rode my bike with my mom I saw my dog yeah. more I've watched yeah. my niece grow up like those moments of life that actually you don't get back and you, you can't get from simply going to work. No, don't get me wrong. Like, not to the detriment of people. I don't mean this to the detriment of people's health who've had COVID. And I know there's some really tough examples of people who might live on their own in a flat who can't get out when we were under strict lockdown. But I remember my, somebody said to my dad about it and he's like, it's been the best six months of my life. He's like, I spend more time with my family. I'm like, yeah, of course. All right, yeah, of course it gets a bit boring. It does get a bit boring. There's certain things, but would I rather be doing that or would I rather be super busy away from home for six months, flying off here everywhere under pressure to do work things and deadlines? It's like, actually, it's just allowed. I remember Brian Driscoll actually said it and I thought exactly the same. He said, I think it's just like nature's way of just saying slow down, like slow down and just like appreciate like what life is all about. And I was chatting to a sports psychologist who's a really good friend of mine, a really good friend. I've used him for years. And we were out on a dog walk and he was telling me like a really interesting story. He said, there's this hospital where they have this room, which is just full of, it's like all LED screens, like the walls, full to ceiling. It's all like videos of nature, like whether it's jungle or like a valley with a river or whatever. It's got natural plants in the same room and it's got the smells and the sounds of nature. And he said, um, it's been proven that it reduces and, and surgeons and doctors who are under high pressure. They go in there for 30 minutes a day. It's been made compulsory in this particular hospital. It's improving that their stress levels go down by 60% within something like 10 minutes. And he said, it's only since we've recently evolved in the last few hundred years that we've been around buildings and concrete and cars and tech. But he said, but we've evolved over hundreds and hundreds of thousands of if not millions of years living in nature and being in nature. And that's what we're like, that's what our DNA is programmed to be used to. And that's why people by going on a nice walk or when they go to the beach, you come home and you feel good because you're actually in your natural environment. And so things like that, that's what you've been able to do when it's been like lockdown. We'll just appreciate the smaller things. I'm sounding like an old man. Like it's mad. Is this guy fitting too or what? But, like, <laughs> but it's, it's just... I'm it's here just nodding so along. Like being yeah, outdoors just, is beautiful. Yeah, it's glorious. It just makes people appreciate the small things, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, the message here from, from this podcast. And I actually, I, I live for a motivational, cheesy quote. Love them. And I read one recently in, um, in a book I was reading, which was, Be the thermostat, not the temperature. And basically, yeah. you can set yeah. the experience. You can set yeah. how you how you feel during something, and you can choose to suffer 
and be freezing cold or boiling hot, or you can choose to live in a positive way and to make the most yeah. of the opportunity. And obviously we're Definitely. speaking from a point of, of relative privilege where we, we can, you know, afford the time and we, we can live in lockdown comfortably. And of course there are those out there who will be struggling and certainly um, kind of as we enter into a second lockdown at the end of 2020 as well. But if you can and you have the means and you have a roof over your head and everyone's healthy, you've yeah. got to just embrace what we've, what we've kind of been given. And, and you're right. Nature is telling us something, isn't it? But like, look at, say like now, like COVID's always accelerated the world by five years. Like, like say Zoom calling now is so trivial, but like I bet you 90% of people never heard of Zoom going back a year ago. And I, I didn't. Next thing you know, you're doing no seminars and webinars in front of like hundreds of people. It's like, you know, it's sort of accelerated us by five years. The tech's been there, but we've never been forced to use it. But if this happened 20 years ago, oh yeah, it, it would be a heck of a lot harder. We'd be sitting at home doubt. on our 3310s playing Snake. Can you imagine? <laughs> On MSN. If you had a 3210 and you had Snake, you were like, cool. You were yeah. like, so cool, were you? But like, yeah, that, that, on like, dial-up internet. Yeah, I used to, like, get, used to get the cable across the room. <laughs> Young kids get to have a clue. You used to no, get the cable across the room. Nobody could call that house like two hours because we were like yes. on like MSN and listening to like polyphonic ringtones for like an hour on the internet. You plug it into your computer, it would be the dial-up for like 30 seconds. You wait for your computer to dial-up. Maybe playing like a lame game like snooker on there. Like, it's just mad. Like if it was back then when like you couldn't communicate with your friends, but now you can communicate. And yeah. so that's where I know people talk about the disadvantage of social media and tech, but then like in this current climate now, it's been gold for us and allowing us to get through this sort of period. So yeah, you know, again, it's again perspective. You know, if this happened 30, 20, 30 years ago, it would be a lot, lot harder. Nokia would have had some good sales though, wouldn't they? <laughs> You're going to bring that snake, snake. after listening to this. <laughs> I want to play it again. I, know, I, also, I can again. vouch for you and your um, school run, the love of the school run. Because when we went to organise this podcast, you said to me, um, any time Monday morning's great, but just has to be after the school run. <laughs> I was like, that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll do 10.30. I know. <laughs> I know. My wife is like... Um, because like, she's like, oh, I'll just do the school run today. I'm like, no, I'll do it. I'll do the school run today. So she's like, Sam, I want to do it sometimes. But then I like, yeah, I walk the dog as well. So if I tied in the school run, I walk the dog. That's when it's nice. I can start the day a little bit slower now. I'm not getting up at six, seven o'clock in the morning like I used to and training in the cold, wet rain. I can sort of set my day a little bit later. So yes, thanks for accommodating the, um, the school run and the dog walk for me this morning. Absolutely fine. It gives me time to wake up and have a coffee as well. Uh, Sam, <laughs> thank you so, so much for giving me so much Measure. of yourself during this podcast and um, for sharing your life lessons uh, and indeed the perspective that you have now at the grand old age of 32. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look 32. I've had a tough paper round, I think. I look about late 30s, but yeah, I've learned a little bit along the way, at least hopefully. We both sound so old, don't we? I'm going to go play Snake now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, Sam. Oh, a huge thank you to Sam there for taking time to be with us after the school run, of course. And what a brilliant guest he was. Perspective was the key word there. And after shouldering so much pressure and responsibility at such a young age, he has certainly learned some big life lessons. What a great way to end our first series. A huge thank you to my brilliant guests this series. Matthew Pinsent, Ugo Monnier, Nico Roach, Becky Adlington, Lucy Charles, Alex Danson, Catherine Merry, and of course, Sam Warburton for their time and honesty and openness. To my sponsor, Airhead, for making it all possible. My editor, Jay Dupreeze, and designer, Emma Kenyuk. Finally, thank you so much to everyone who has listened, subscribed, downloaded, left a review, and shared this podcast. 
It was born from the frustrations of a sports broadcaster left without much work in the coronavirus pandemic, but it has become so much more than just a lockdown project to me. I hope it has inspired, entertained, and informed in equal measure, and given you a little bit of escapism when perhaps you needed it most. This is absolutely not the end, though. I am working on bonus episodes for this first series, and we'll be back for season two as well with brand new guests. As ever, keep an eye on social media at Laura C. Winter on Twitter and Instagram, and at Lessons Learned Pod on Instagram for all the latest news and to share your thoughts or questions. If you've loved the series, please leave a review and subscribe so you'll be the first to hear when a new episode drops. Until then, stay safe, take care, and remember, a lesson learned the hard way is a lesson learned for a lifetime. I will see you all very soon. Bye for now.